Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with a message, Christ is Coming. All right. Well, one day the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. You guys know the Lord's response, the Lord's prayer, because it is by far the most famous prayer on the planet. Lord, teach us to pray. He said, when you pray, say this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, listen to this, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus made it very clear. How then should we pray? He said in Matthew 6, 9 through 10, ask the Father this, your kingdom come, your will be done on what? Earth, so important you get that. On earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus said that when we pray, we should ask the Father that his kingdom would come to the earth so that his will would would be done on the earth just like it's done up in heaven. Okay, so here's the question. Has that prayer request been fulfilled yet? The answer is no. Have you read the headlines this week? Let let me share a few of them with you. Um, Suspect on the run after car bomb kills two people in Turkey. Donald Trump issues stern warning to North Korea about nuclear weapons. Facebook live video shows a disabled man tied up, beaten, as the captors yell racial profanities. At least nine killed in Baghdad in a car bomb attack. And then, of course, we know because It just happened in our own backyard and our hearts are still grieving. Airport shooting in Fort Lauderdale kills five people. And and that's just a, a small portion of the headlines this week. And so it's very clear from the headlines that that prayer request has not yet been answered. It's very clear in the headlines that God's kingdom has not yet come and his will has not yet been done on earth just like it's done in heaven. It's very clear from the headlines that the usurper, Satan, is still, as he's called in 2 Corinthians 4.4, quote, the God of this world. That's the bad news. The good news is that one day the Lord's prayer will be answered. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. By the time we get to the end, 22 chapters, by the time we get to the end of this book, ladies and gentlemen, all evil will be eradicated from the face of the earth and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. And so on that day, Revelation 22, God's kingdom will finally fully come and God's will will finally fully be done on earth just like it's done in heaven. Now, last week, I preached a message called Understanding Revelation. In that message, I gave three very important principles that we need to accept if we're going to truly understand the book of Revelation. But I know because of the holidays and the traveling, many of you missed that message. You need to have that. It's kind of like the prerequisite before the the, the rest of the study. And so if you missed last week, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Two things. Number one, and it's it's either or, you can go to calvarypsl.com. That's our website. You can click on watch, and you can either watch or listen to that message from last Sunday, January 1st, or... If you want to, you can go to the iTunes store and type in Calvary Port St. Lucie podcast, and you can listen to the message while you're on the go. You can listen to all of these messages. All right, so verse one, here we go. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, so the Father gave to the Son, Jesus, to show to his servants, 
it's you and I and all believers for the last two millennia, the things that must soon, I want you to circle the word soon, I'll come back to it, the things that must soon, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the, what's the next three words? You got the word of God staring at you right now. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Okay, so there's a mouthful there. Let's start just with the title. Look at verse one again. The revelation of, that word of in the Greek can also be translated from. The revelation from Jesus Christ. It's called revelation. Now that's ironic because a lot of Christians believe that the book of Revelation is too hard to understand. They think that it's some mystical book filled with secret codes that nobody can, there's no way you could ever clearly decipher all of this stuff. And so sadly, because most or many Christians at least have this misconception about the book of Revelation, they don't take the time to study the book. I was talking to a guy uh, who was visiting our church just in between the, next, the last two services, and he was saying that he did research about how many churches teach through Revelation, and it's less than 10%, okay? And so most Christians ignore this book. They say it's too hard to understand. Well, is the book of Revelation too hard to understand? I would say that the very title of the book shouts no. The word revelation in the Greek means this, if you're taking notes, apocalypsis. It means laying bare, a disclosure of truth. It's used of events by things, by which things or states or persons hitherto withdrawn from view are, look, look at this, made visible to all. And so isn't it interesting that the title of this book means to lay bare, not cover up. It means to disclose truth, not conceal truth. It means to make visible to all, not to hide from all. The word revelation means unveiling. And so God is not trying to hide anything from us. He's not trying to hide truth in revelation. Just the opposite, he's laying it bare, he's disclosing it, he's making it visible to all. And so contrary to modern thought, Revelation is not some mystical book that's too hard to understand. It can be understood. And when you understand it, put your seatbelt on, it'll change your life. You will go as all of us have made this journey because we're all born with a sin nature. You will go from a self centered person who thinks the universe revolves around you to a Christ-centered person who is waiting in eager anticipation for the soon coming of Jesus Christ. And so when you understand Revelation, it loudly proclaims that Christ is coming. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, some people read that word soon and that phrase, soon take place, and they think this, you know, really? <laughs> Come on, John, the things that must soon take place? You wrote this 2,000 years ago. For 2,000 years, nothing has changed, nothing's taken place. Everything continues on just like it's always uh, continued on since the, the creation of time. And so I think people who believe that have a misunderstanding of the word soon. You see, when John wrote the word soon in the Greek, he wasn't talking about the length of time that's gonna elapse between the time that he wrote this, we're gonna find out next week in AD 95, and the time Jesus is coming back. He was not saying that. When he wrote the word soon, he was talking about end time events when they start to occur, will occur rapidly. That's what the Greek word means. If you're taking notes, the word for soon, tekos, means quickness or speed. And so John's talking about the things that will speedily take place. 
Now, if you've been to our church for any length of time, you know that I uh, love Charles Ryrie. He's with the Lord. I think he went home to be with the Lord last uh, Valentine's Day of last year. Uh, his study Bible is in our cafe, but this is what Charles Ryrie has to say about that Greek word in his context in Revelation 1.1, and I quote, this word does not indicate that events described in this book will necessarily occur soon, but that, that, that when they do begin to happen, they will come to pass swiftly, speedily, okay? And so here's a paraphrase of what Charles Ryrie and others uh, are, are saying here, that when end time events begin to happen, they're gonna happen within seven years. Seven short years. Now, some of you may think, I've always heard preachers like you talk about seven years in the end times. You know, the tribulation. Where do you get that from? We get it from Daniel 9, verse 27. Now, as I said last week, you'll never understand Revelation unless you understand Daniel. Daniel, a sixth century BC prophet of God, also wrote about end times. His book correlates beautifully with John's revelation written in 8095. And so this is what Daniel wrote, speaking about the coming Antichrist, okay? And I'm gonna refer to this probably 50 times over the next um, eight plus months, okay? And so we'll get deeper and deeper into it as we go. But Daniel 9.27 says, and he, in the context from verse 26, is talking about the prince who is going to come. That's the Antichrist, the coming global political leader. And he shall make a strong covenant. Okay, scholars believe that means a Middle East peace treaty. And he shall make a peace treaty with many that's Israel and her neighbors, for how long? Help me out. One week. Week in Hebrew, Shavuot. It's not talking about, in the context, a week of days. It's talking about a week of years. It's the 70th week of Daniel. The, the last seven year, years of history as we know it. And I know some of you are thinking, what in the world is he saying? Again, I'll explain all of it as we go through our study. But what you need to know for now is that there is a coming, global, magnanimous, charismatic, the whole world's gonna go, wow, leader, and he's gonna do something that hasn't been able to be achieved yet. He's gonna bring peace to the Middle East. And he is going to sign a Middle East peace treaty with Israel and her neighbors for seven years. And he's a deceiver. That signing of that peace treaty is gonna kick off the last seven years of history as we know it, and of course, it's commonly known as the tribulation. Okay, so concerning the tribulation, which is in the future, Jesus said this in Mark chapter 13, verse 20. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. In other words, if the tribulation period in the future was any longer than seven years, every human being on the planet would be wiped out because of all the, the cataclysmic events, horrific events described in Revelation chapter six through chapter 19. If the tribulation was any longer than seven years, there would be no one alive left to walk into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so things are gonna get a lot worse before they get a lot better. The disciples asked Jesus this question in Matthew 24, three. They said, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus replied in Matthew 24, four through seven. I'm just gonna read his reply. He says, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. 
And so, right after Jesus said what he said in Matthew 24, four through seven, the very next verse, he said this. All these things are but the beginning of what? Okay, false messiahs, false teachers, false prophets. Not only that, but wars between nations. Not only that, but um, incredible, horrible famines, global famines, incredible earthquakes. Jesus said that's just the beginning of birth pains. Now, every mom in this room knows all about birth pains. I remember when my wife, Stacy had our middle daughter, Mandy, and the birth pains that she had and the labor that she had, which was so incredibly difficult. When my wife gave birth to our oldest daughter, Megan, and our youngest daughter, Mary, um, her labor was not that hard because she had this thing called an epidural. And I remember being there for Megan and Mary and the, the contractions were off the chart and my wife was like, oh, I'm having a contraction. You know, how many of you guys are really happy for modern day medicine, right? But Mandy, our middle daughter, totally different story. When we got to the hospital, the medical staff said, you're too far along, Stacy, to have an epidural. You're just gonna have to endure this. And so what happened was that her contraction, her water broke, her contraction started. Every mom knows this, right? And the contractions increased in frequency and intensity until it became almost unbearable. And, and you know, I've never, I can honestly say this, I've never seen my wife the way she was when she was giving birth to Mandy. It was like insane. She was screaming, right? And, and, and I felt so bad. And I told her that. I said, honey, I feel your pain, <laughs> right? I didn't say that because she would have slapped me for sure and it would not have been a sin. So, so all you young guys out here, you know, never, ever, ever say that. You have no idea. Guys, we have no idea what our wives go through. We have it made in the shade, right? It was Carol Burnett, by the way. Carol Burnett is the one who made famous this statement. It was original with her. She said to guys who... Um, you know, if you wanna experience childbirth, grab your bottom lip and pull it up over your head, and then maybe you'll get an idea of what women go through. But anyway, Stacy's contractions, here's the point I want you to get. They increased in frequency and intensity until it was almost unbearable, but then something awesome happened. Mandy came, and they cleaned her off, and they, spanked her and she's wah, and they gave her to my wife. And listen, when my wife received that gift, it didn't matter how much pain she went through. Moms, you know this. And so the end times, the last seven years of the face, on the face of this earth, it's gonna be like childbirth. That leads you to your next point. The cataclysmic events of the tribulation are gonna increase in frequency and intensity until something amazing happens, and it's called the birth of a brand new kingdom. False messiahs, wars between nations, terrible famines, great earthquakes, Jesus said, just the beginning of birth pains. So when you take all that he said in Matthew 24 and in the gospel, and you add it to everything he's gonna show John in Revelation 6 through 19, you mix it all together, what you have are birth pains. And what you have is gonna get so bad, it'll be almost unbearable for humanity. And then they'll look and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and a new kingdom will be born. Look at verse one again. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon speedily, once they start happening, take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Do you notice how God the Father gave the revelation to God the Son who gave it to John through an angel? What does all that mean? Verse two, who bore witness to the, again, what's the next three words? Word of God. 
and to all, I'm sorry, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. By the way, the word of God is the words of Jesus Christ. Do you notice that? Even to all that he saw. So what you have right here open before you, either electronically or in some leather-bound Bible, is the very word of God. Now, what happens when we study the word of God? Look at verse three. Blessed, that word means happy. Happy is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed or happy are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. As I said last week, Revelation is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing to those who read it aloud and then to those who receive it, hear it, and then live it out. But again, notice the twofold blessing that God is promising in verse three. Blessed is the one who reads it aloud, okay? And so here's what happened. John wrote the book of Revelation on a scroll and he sent it to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And what happened? Those local pastors in those churches grabbed the scroll of Revelation. They opened it up and they read it aloud. And no doubt when they read it, they took a break after a few sentences and they explained it the best they could with the Holy Spirit's help. They read it and they explained it. They read it in those seven churches to seven local congregations, probably a lot more house churches spinning off of the main churches. And so the congregants received a blessing for hearing the word of God and then living it out during the week. That was true of John's letters, whether it's Revelation, first, second, or third John. That's true of Jude's letters. That's true of Peter's letters. That's true of Paul's letters. All these letters in our New Testament circulated, not in a, together in the New Testament. That was put together later where they were all put together, but as individual scrolls to local pastors. Listen to this. If you're with me, say amen here. Get this. They read the letters of the apostles. They believed it was the word of God and they explained it. They read it and they explained it. They read it and they explained it. We also know that Paul traveled around the Roman Empire. He went into synagogues on Saturday and he would take Old Testament Hebrew scriptures and he would reason out of the scriptures. What am I saying? What I'm saying is that in the first century, I guarantee you there was no local pastor who stood up and gave a 20-minute pep talk about how you can get you have your best life now. I guarantee you in the first century, there was nobody giving superficial, topical type of messages, making you feel good, and helping you understand how you can be a success in life. No, Nero was persecuting Christians. Later on, Domitian was persecuting Christians. They were trying to stay alive. They didn't have their best life now. They just were hungry for the word of God. And when they went to church, that's what they got. And so what are you saying? What I'm saying is that we are committed to the verse-by-verse -verse teaching of the Word of God. This is God's Word. You don't need a pep talk. You'll never grow spiritually if all you get every Sunday is a pep talk. And the next time a storm of life hits and a trial comes and you know they're coming, if all you have is two or three years of pep talks, you're going to be on your back, wiped out spiritually. You need the Word of God. That's what we need. And sometimes the word of God is, woo, awesome. And sometimes it hurts because it calls us to repent of secret sins that so many of God's people like to indulge in and dishonor him privately while they try to honor him publicly. And so the revelation of Jesus Christ, John said, in verse two is the word of God. And if you read aloud the word of God and do it, you're blessed, verse three. Verse four now, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Okay, we'll study that in verse chapters two and three. Grace to you and peace from, please circle the word him, who is and who was and who is to come. Okay, so that's the father and from the, please circle the two words, seven spirits 
who are before his throne, I know it's odd, I know it's strange, but I believe that's talking about the Holy Spirit. I'll explain. And so you have the Father, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit, who are before his throne, and verse five of, please circle, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Right here in verses four and five, you see, I believe, a beautiful picture of the Trinity. So if you're taking notes, that is your next point. Our God is a triunity. Now, we don't believe in three gods. Pagans do. Pagans believe in multiple gods. We don't believe in three. We believe in one God. We believe in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so in the Old Testament, the triunity of God was hinted at. We know that for one reason, because of Elohim, which is God's name in the plural. Let us make man in our image. He wasn't talking about the angels because we're not made in the image of angels. We're made in the image of God. Let us make man in our image. Okay, so we see hints of the triunity of God in the Old Testament, but it's fully revealed through progressive revelation in the New Testament. Okay, and so throughout, the, from Matthew to Revelation, you have all passages, many passages like what we're seeing here that are disclosing the triunity of our one God. Now look again at John's odd reference to the Holy Spirit in verse four. He referred to the Holy Spirit as seven spirits who are before his throne. That's weird because the Bible very clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit is one. And so why the reference to seven spirits? Well, I believe that the word seven um, points to, in the scriptures, perfection, fullness, and completeness. And so therefore, the, the word seven here most likely refers to the perfection, fullness, and complete, completeness of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Not his person, but his ministry. And we see a hint of this in Isaiah 11, one and two. Okay, I'm going a little deeper than usual, but I wanted you to see this. Okay, so now we're talking about uh, eighth century B.C., 700 years before Christ, thereabouts, Isaiah the prophet is writing about the coming Messiah and the anointing of the Spirit on that coming Messiah. And he said, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of who? That's David's dad, King David. Jesus, of course, is the son of David. So there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's obviously the coming Messiah. Every Jew believes it's the coming Messiah. And notice this now, and, and look at me. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. How many fingers am I holding up? Seven the number of completion, perfection, fullness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Messiah. And of course, we all know that the coming Messiah was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's my take on it. Um, of course, many um, solid Bible commentators have the same take. Some solid Bible commentators, just so you know, um, believe the seven spirits before the throne are seven angels, okay? Um, I don't agree with that. I don't think it's that big of a deal, but it is a big deal that our God is a triunity, and it seems like that is what John is unveiling in verses four and five. Okay, so he called the Father, in verse four, the one who is and who was and who is to come, and then he described the, the Holy Spirit, at least I believe his ministry, the seven spirits who are before the throne, and then he describes Jesus, look at verse five, as the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so from that description, this is the truth that we see about Jesus. He died as a martyr. He rose from the dead, and he will one day rule over the earth. That's the message of the New Testament, and that's the gospel right there. 
I'm always looking for ways to put in the gospel in every single message that I preach. Well, today it was right there um, in verse four and five. And so John called Jesus, please watch me, the faithful witness, okay? And so the word witness in the Greek is where we get our English word martyr. So Jesus Christ died as a martyr for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Here's the gospel. Please listen if you're new to church. You're not gonna go to heaven by doing good works. Here's the gospel right here. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the martyr who died. Why did he die? He died so you wouldn't have to die forever in hell. He absorbed the wrath of God. He was wounded for your sins and mine. He died as a martyr. But the good news is he rose again. He's the firstborn of the dead. Did you know that Jesus Christ was the first one who ever rose from the dead? And some of you are thinking, well, time out. What about Lazarus? What about Jairus' daughter? What about the widow, son from Nain? Jesus raised them from the dead before he rose from the dead. What's the difference here? Here's the difference. Those three people and other people in the Bible who were raised from the dead, that was more like a resuscitation than a resurrection. And the reason why is because those people, Lazarus, the daughter of Jairus and the widow's son, they died again, right? Lazarus, come forth. Okay, here comes Lazarus. And Jesus says, loose him. And everybody's so happy, except for Lazarus. You really think he wanted to come back? He was in heaven. Anybody who's been in heaven doesn't want to come back here. And guess what? Lazarus, oh, I got to do this again. And he died again. Jairus' daughter died again. The widow's son died again. But Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, he was the only one, the first one ever, the first one ever to receive an immortal, indestructible, eternal body that can never die. Jesus dies no more. And so he's the faithful martyr who died for our sins. He rose again from the grave. And then did you notice John's last description of who he is? It says that he's going to rule over the kings of the earth. Everybody say the word earth. That's important because the amillennial position we talked about last week, so many Christians think that the extent of Jesus' reign is from heaven. Sorry, he's coming back to the earth, and when he comes back to the earth, he's gonna rule over literal kings of the earth, and that's gonna take place during a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. That's who Jesus is, and now look at what he did in the second half of verse five. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. John is just so overwhelmed as he's writing this in AD 95 about who Jesus is and what he's done. He ends verse six by saying, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so the one who died as a martyr rose from the dead and who will rule over the kings of the earth. That's who he is. Look at what he did. He loves you. Did you know that that phrase in the Greek is in the present tense? In other words, he will always love you. Aren't you glad God is love? You see, I believe that most people repent because of the kindness of God. I think it's Romans 14. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. In other words, when we finally get it through our thick brains that he loves us and there's nothing we could ever do to make him stop loving us, when we have that correct biblical view of Jesus, that'll motivate us to live a holy life. And some people, you know, you gotta preach hellfire and brimstone and they repent and that's fine for some people, but I think most people, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. 
He loves us. That's unconditional. You say, you don't know what I did this past week. Listen, Jesus loves you and he won't stop loving you. And so, as he said to the woman taken in adultery, go and sin no more. I love you, I forgive you. It says he freed us. That's in the aorist tense. That means once and for all. And so he freed us from, from our sins by his blood. What does that mean? That means that you don't get saved, blow it, and then lose your salvation. Get saved, blow it, and then lose your salvation. Get saved again and blow it and lose your salvation. No, he freed us once and for all. That means that his death was efficacious for all of our sins, past, present, future. It's all gone. You're free. Walk in your freedom. And then he made us priests. I love this. You don't, you don't need a priest. You are a priest. That You don't need anybody to go on your behalf to God for you. You can go straight directly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're a priest. So start acting like a priest. Tomorrow morning, get up early. And as a priest, offer your prayers. As a priest, offer your praises. As a priest, offer your spiritual sacrifice, which is yourself that day, to the Lord. And so who is he? He's Jesus Christ, the martyr who died for our sins, rose from the grave and is coming back. What did he do? He loves us, he freed us, he made us priests and that makes us this morning want to shout out with John at the end of verse six, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Verse seven, I, I, I got a sneaking suspicion that there's some people who really wanna say that out loud, the end of verse six. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. And so on the count of three, if you're thankful for all that Jesus is and all he's done for you, starting with um, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. On the count of three, go ahead and say that. One, two, three, go. Now, if you're really grateful that you've been freed from your sins forever and that you're gonna reign with him forever. Now, say it like you mean it, all right? You ready? One, two, three, go. Amen. Amen, right? Thank God. And so now in verse seven, behold, he is coming with the clouds. It's just like, it gets climax, better and better more and more, fuller and fuller. He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those, look at this, who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And John says, even so, amen. And so when Jesus comes, every eye is gonna see him, even those who pierced him. That's talking about the nation of Israel, who 2,000 years ago, as a nation, not every Jew, by any stretch of the imagination, because the church was 100% Jewish in the beginning. But the nation, the Sanhedrin, officially, they rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and they turned him over to the Romans to be pierced. Well, someday, the nation of Israel is gonna see the one they pierced when he comes back on the clouds. Zechariah talked about this. 500 years before Christ, check out this prophecy. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have, what? 500 BC. They, that's Israel, shall mourn for him. The good news is we know that that mourning of Israel, that sorrow is a deep sorrow of repentance. And so when Jesus comes back on the clouds, Israel, the Jews, are gonna look up, they're gonna see the nail prints, by the way, that he still has in his hands forever and ever and ever. When you see Jesus, you'll know how much he loves you. 
And they're gonna see the nail prints in his hands and they're gonna mourn, they're gonna repent, they're gonna sorrow. Why have we been so hard-hearted for 2,000 years? Why did we reject him as our Messiah? Look, he's coming back to rescue us. And Romans eleven twenty six 26 says, all the Jews who are alive at the end of the tribulation, all Israel shall be saved. But what about the rest of the Gentiles all across the world. Look at the end of verse seven. And all the tribes of the earth will wail. That's not repentance. They're gonna wail on account of him, even so, amen. And so not all, but most of the Gentiles who were alive, who survive the tribulation, they're gonna see Jesus coming back on the clouds, and they're gonna wail, they're gonna rage. They're gonna be so upset, why? Why? Because they know they're damned. How can you say that, Pastor Mike? Because I've read Revelation 13. Most of the world receives the mark of the beast in their right hand or in their forehead, sealing their doom forever. And they're gonna finally figure out that that imposter, that antichrist, he's not the Christ. This is the Christ coming, and they're gonna rage. The, the Jews are gonna repent. The Gentiles, most of them, will rage. And then here's your final verse. I am, verse eight, the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, please look at me here. Here you have Revelation 1.8, and it's describing the Father. You say, how do you know? Because it said who is, who was, and who is to come. It's the exact same description of the Father John just wrote in verse four. Who is, who was, and who is to come, okay? And so in Revelation 1.8, God the Father is described as the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And then, in the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 13, listen to this, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. What does that mean? That means that Jesus wasn't created. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is God. He and the Father, co-equal with the Spirit. And so the question is, have you come to the true God of the Bible and asked him to forgive your sins? Have you received his son have you given your life to him? One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.